0: What would it look like for you and for me to think of ourselves as workers in a harvest field where God has placed us? To look around the neighborhood or the home or the office or the school, not simply as the context in which you function and get on with your your business, but as a harvest field of souls.
1: Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Today we continue a message we began last time, a powerful message, an urgent need. And Jonathan, I think it's so easy for some of us to kind of stay in our Christian bubble, to be surrounded by family and maybe friends and people we go to church with and and forget that there is a lost and dying world outside of that little bubble who needs to hear about Jesus.
0: Yeah, it's so easy to slip into that way of thinking as a Christian believer, you know, within a within a, a, a range of contacts of other believers, as so many of us do function much of the time. But Jesus really wants to lift our eyes to the wider need in society, and he, he gives us a very positive presentation. I think Christians can sometimes feel like, man, the world just isn't interested in hearing the good news of Jesus. The world wouldn't be receptive. But Jesus says, actually, there is a plentiful harvest. There are lots of folk who would really like to respond to the good news. And he, he says workers are needed who will go out with that good news. And that really gives us a vision for what we can do as followers of Jesus in introducing others to him.
1: I uh, heard a pastor talking recently about the fact that, you know, as we go out and begin to cultivate a harvest, one of the ways that we then increase that harvest is to send those who just recently came to know Jesus back out into that harvest field. The workers are plenty, but in a sense, we need to go cultivate some workers. I think we do need to
0: cultivate workers, and um, there are there are such huge opportunities, but many of us feel that the work to be done is for someone else to do it. Hmm. And I think as we see the heart of Jesus for our society and for the lost, it's right for us to catch that vision and to think, what what could I be doing? How could the Lord use me as a worker in his harvest field?
1: Or well, we're going to continue to look at this from Matthew chapter 9. We're in verses uh, 35 to 38 today as we continue. A powerful message and an urgent need. Here is Jonathan.
0: What does Jesus see? What does Jesus see as he looks out on a broken society? A sin-stained, pain-filled world. He sees a harassed and a helpless people. Sheep lost and vulnerable, torn down because they have no shepherds. And what's his response? He's filled with compassion. That's the heart of Jesus. And if we are a people after his own heart, that must be our heart too. That must be our reaction to the world around us. Not frustration or antagonism, but a heart of compassion. Well, Jesus is moved with compassion, but having been moved by compassion, what does he then do? What does his compassion drive him to in practical terms? Well, it drives him, very interestingly, to appeal for co-workers. And that's our third observation here, verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, "...the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field." As I've mentioned already, this is really a key moment in the Gospel of Matthew. So far, Jesus has essentially been the one doing all the action, sending out the message, performing the miracles, and so on. But now at this pivot point, he very intentionally begins to involve his disciples in this kingdom project as he prepares to send them out on mission in the next chapter. It is, of course, a basic principle of good leadership that a leader needs to know how to delegate well and appropriately. I'm beginning to learn a little bit about the American Civil War just at the moment, and I'm, I'm finding out a bit about Jefferson Davis, who, as you may know, was the president of the Confederate States during that war. I think it's fair to say that Davis was not considered to be a great leader. Not particularly strong in his leadership gifts, and some would say that his leadership failings contributed significantly to the defeat of the Confederate project. But in any case, I gather that one of his key weaknesses in leadership was a reluctance to delegate. He, he micromanaged. He couldn't hand things over very easily and very well. See, good leaders, they need to be able to delegate. It's a basic principle. And so any decent management guru or leadership consultant would look at Jesus here at the end of Matthew chapter 9 and give him the big thumbs up. He's taken the movement as far as he can on his own. And to reach that next stage of growth, he needs to train, he needs to equip, he needs to deploy a team. He needs to delegate to grow and to expand his kingdom and on one level that's perhaps true it's it's good strategy and good leadership that jesus is exercising here But all that having been said, there is still something surprising and, I think, counterintuitive to what Jesus is doing. I mean, here is the all-powerful, divine Son of God looking at a situation of real need, people who are lost and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, and so on. A situation he could address in an instant through his miraculous power. A single word from his mouth would bring all the help and all the healing and all the salvation that's needed. But he chooses instead to involve a Group of feeble and ordinary people. People who will show themselves in this book of Matthew to be very flawed, very sinful, very fickle, very weak. But nonetheless, that is Jesus's strategy. That is his approach. That is his great plan. We recently took a little road trip as a family, and of course, family road trips mean lots of creative packing of the car, filling in every corner and crevice under every seat with bags and shoes and books and games. It's always a bit of a challenge and a bit of a headache and I always come back from the vacation resolved to buy a bigger car. (laughs) I was just embarking on the project packing up when our four-year-old appeared on the driveway and offered to uh, help with the packing. If you've got young kids at home, you know the dynamics of the situation. Help is not always exactly helpful in the strictest sense of helpfulness. In fact, sometimes the help makes for a fair bit more work and much slower progress than would otherwise have been possible. But it's such a delight and such a joy to involve your children in jobs that you're just glad to to do it and to spend the extra time. Well, here Jesus involves his helpers. And I think the dynamic is not all that different. He's delighted to involve his people, to involve his followers, even though he could do perfectly well without us. Jesus involves his followers, first of all, in prayer. Notice that he doesn't begin by saying, the need for workers is great, so get out there and start working. We might anticipate he would do that, but that's not what he does. No, he says, the need for workers is great, so ask the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. Get praying, says Jesus. The work needing to be done is greater than any one of us can manage. None of us can do it on our own. So in a sense, the most strategic thing we can do is to pray. I don't want to be unfair here, but I think it's true to say that most of us are pretty inclined to undervalue prayer. I think that's my own inclination. We like to do things. We're activists. We like to achieve things. We like to see results. And prayer feels very much like inaction. And so we're a little slow, I think, to give ourselves to it. If we're believers, of course, we do acknowledge that we should pray, that it's good to pray, that the Bible tells us to pray. We hear that and and we, we take it on board, but somewhere in our heart of hearts, we tend to wonder if prayer actually has real value. After all, if God is God, if he is the sovereign one, and he has determined from eternity past what he will do, what impact could our little prayers possibly have? Isn't it just better to get on with the job that God's put before us and not waste our time on our knees? And even if we wouldn't put it quite so strongly as that, we probably demonstrate our lack of confidence in the value of prayer through the feebleness of our prayer life. I often feel that individually and corporately as well. It's hard to stir ourselves to come to a prayer meeting. We never have to worry about crowd control at the prayer meetings. I'm never up at night in a cold sweat thinking we're going to be overwhelmed at the prayer meeting. It's hard to stir ourselves to pray corporately. It's hard to stir ourselves to pray privately. We find that hard, don't we? To pray daily on our own and to maintain that discipline. We don't gravitate toward prayer naturally. We struggle to believe that prayer really changes things. And yet the Lord Jesus calls us to pray. He calls us to pray even before we act, to pray before we go, to pray before we serve, to pray before we speak. Now, that basic observation, it is a basic observation from verse 38. It doesn't give us a full theology of prayer and analysis of how prayer works and why prayer works, but it does tell us this much, and this much is significant. The sovereign God has chosen to work through the prayers of his people. The sovereign God has chosen to work in and through the prayers of people like me and like you to carry out and fulfill his good plans for the gospel and for the world. Of course, he could bypass prayer. He could do that. But he has chosen to involve us, his helpers, in prayer. And actually, that is enough for us to know. That's enough understanding for us to get hold of in order to believe that prayer matters and that we should give ourselves to it. One of the things I've been learning over time in ministry is that when I see a work of God somewhere that is flourishing, a church or a parachurch ministry of some kind, if I scratch a little beneath the surface and get to know the ministry, I am pretty much guaranteed to discover that there is a group of people behind it who are deeply committed to prayer. There will be a core group of people who have been really praying probably for a good long time. And God has been pleased in his grace to answer their prayers. When we first saw God's evident blessing on the work and his multiplication of the work over the years, I had that same thought. There are going to be some faithful prayers here. And of course, that's absolutely the case. If you know the church family, you know that. There are a number here in this church family whose central ministry is a ministry of faithful prayer. Now, if we ask why the Lord has blessed this church over the years, why has he given it growth? Why has he been pleased to draw people to himself here and give them new life? Why has he been pleased to raise up workers for the harvest field and send them all over the world? Well, there are probably a number of elements to the answer there. But I think the answer probably begins with this. It is because his people have prayed. (laughs) Lots of people have prayed many people in this room have given themselves to prayer and have done so for the long haul. Now this ministry of prayer is not something we think about a lot, not something we often celebrate and promote. Maybe we're not even in a golden age of prayer here at the church just now, I don't know. But I do think we need to take verse 38 seriously. Take seriously the value the Lord Jesus places on prayer.
1: we're going to pause right here, but stick around. We'll continue this message, a powerful message and an urgent need in just a moment. This is Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths, and we're able to stay on the station because of your generosity. It truly is your financial support that allows us to bring you Jonathan's teaching each day. And as you give a gift of any amount, we want to send you a thank you book. It's called The Names of Jesus, Experiencing the Blessing of Knowing Him. The author is Warren Wiersbe, a renowned Bible teacher and pastor, and he has put this book together, taking a look at names of Jesus like Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Nazarene, the Pioneer, the Lamb, and the Firstborn. And we'd love to send you a copy of this book as our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. You can find out more or give online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's one 833 99 or EncounterTheTruth.org. If you joined us late or in Matthew chapter 9, as we get back to our message, once again, here is Jonathan.
0: I came across these rather good words from J.C. Ryle, the famous evangelical bishop of the 19th century. Commenting on these very verses, Ryle says this, If we know anything of prayer, let us make it a point of conscience never to forget this solemn charge of our Lord's. Let us settle it in our minds that it is one of the surest ways of doing good and stemming evil. Personal working for souls is good, giving money is good, but praying is best of all. By prayer we reach him, without whom work and money alike are in vain. Money can pay agents, universities can give learning, congregations may elect, but the Holy Ghost alone can make ministers of the gospel and raise up lay workmen in the spiritual harvest. Never, never may we forget that if we would do good to the world, our first duty is to pray. The Lord Jesus graciously involves us in his work through prayer. But our involvement doesn't stop with prayer, even if it begins there. The focus of this prayer that we're called to is that God might raise up workers for the harvest field. The focus is actually that the Lord might raise up many of us to serve in that harvest field, to serve, to speak, even to go. And in fact, it's pretty interesting here in the passage that the very people Jesus tells to pray, that is his disciples, are the same people he will send out in the next chapter to go. Those who were called to pray were immediately raised up to be the answer to their own prayers. I'm quite fascinated by Jesus' assessment of the situation before him in verse 37. Maybe I'm just a natural pessimist, but I I think if I were Jesus, looking around at the opposition he faced, at the difficulties involved in getting people to understand and respond, knowing as he knows that the crowds will eventually call for his crucifixion, I think I would be inclined to say, you know, the, the harvest is meager. It's meager in our day and age. Interest is low. The spiritual temperature is off the bottom of the scale. You can't even see the mercury. The problem isn't a lack of workers. The problem is that society is turned against the Lord. Now that would be my pessimistic glass half empty assessment. But Jesus, he looks out on a broken society and a sinful people. And he says this, the harvest is plentiful. Can't you see it? It's plentiful. People are there just ready to hear the gospel, just ready to respond. But what we need is workers. There's more wheat here than we can gather into our barn. The harvest is plentiful. It's wonderful driving through the fields on the edge of Ottawa at this time of year. You see the crops growing at a tremendous pace. There's life everywhere, growth abounding, and the harvest is soon to come. Now that image, that's the spiritual picture that Jesus paints of our society. Despite all the opposition, despite the fact that people are utterly lost, harassed, helpless, sheep without a shepherd, there's actually a ripe harvest before our very eyes. And the limiting factor is simply this. We don't have enough workers to go out. That was the case in Jesus' day, and it's certainly the case in ours. Getting a handle on the scale of the need here in Canada is hard to do. Statistics suggest that about 10% of the population self-identify as evangelical gospel-believing Christians. Or to put it the other way, in my glass half-empty kind of a way, 90% of the population do not self-identify in that way. Now that's, that's nationwide, coast-to-coast. But if you're familiar with the cultural and the religious scene across the Ottawa River in Quebec, you'll know that the context there is distinctive and the need is proportionately much greater. In Quebec, less than 1% of the population self-identify as evangelical gospel believing. I understand that it's probably the least evangelized region in all of the Americas. Many here in our congregation live in Quebec and have a big heart for Quebec. And you could speak of the situation there with much more insight than I have. But we live in the midst of a massive mission field in our city, in our greater region, and in our nation. The harvest is plentiful, people will hear and people will respond, but the workers are few. As we pray that the Lord might raise up workers for this great harvest field, we do need to consider each one of us personally and individually how we might be part of the answer to that prayer. How might you and I individually respond to the call? How might we be engaged as workers in the spread of the gospel? Now, it may be that that's not something you've ever given very serious thought to or consideration of. Perhaps you've never really thought much about what it would mean to serve in the Lord's harvest field, even where he's placed you now. After all, the Lord in his wisdom and in his sovereignty has strategically placed each one of us in families and in communities, in schools, in workplaces where there are lost people, sheep, without a shepherd who desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ? What would it look like for you and for me to think of ourselves as workers in a harvest field where God has placed us? To look around the neighborhood or the home or the office or the school, not simply as the context in which you function and get on with your your business, but as a harvest field of souls. I think all of us should do at least that much. All of us need to make that mental shift and view our context in that way, view ourselves in that way as workers in a field. But there is as well that more specific need for workers who will set aside other activities and other priorities and give themselves vocationally and fully, full time, to the work of ministry, to serve as pastors, as missionaries, as evangelists, as other ministry workers. There's a desperate need for full-time gospel workers. And it may be that you've never before contemplated that you could be such a person. But as you see this need, and as you hear the heart of Jesus on this matter, you just start to wonder, could it be me? Would the Lord call me? Would the Lord send me? Perhaps you're in college now and thinking about what life might hold. And and maybe you're starting to ask the question, would the Lord call me? Would the Lord use me? Maybe you're at a point where actually the season in life is just changing and you're maybe coming up to retirement. What a wonderful thing to think, could the Lord use me in my retirement years for vocational ministry? Retirement's a wonderful thing. It's an unusual stage in history, I think, where retirement stretches before so many for so many years. That's quite unique in modern history. But what an opportunity for the gospel to invest retirement in ministry. The imagery here in this passage is agricultural in nature, as we've noticed. The world is a field, and God is the Lord of the harvest. We get the picture, but modern farms don't help us quite to see the point Farming has become so mechanized and so efficient that fewer and fewer people are actually needed to uh, cultivate uh, more and more land. That's part of the reason why rural populations have shrunk in many places. It's not that the land is no longer farmed. It's that fewer people are needed for these vast tracts and these huge holdings. But we need to roll back the decades and even the centuries to get the image right. We need to think of farms in centuries gone by where crops were harvested by hand where a big harvest would take a huge crew of laborers. The work of the gospel, the work of evangelism, it's not something that we can automate or streamline. It takes workers. It's intensive work. It takes people who will go and build relationships and make inroads in new communities, who will speak of Jesus and answer questions and live the Christian life before others as a witness, people who will follow up, people who will disciple, who will care, who will work. And maybe, just maybe, the Lord would have you set other priorities aside and go full-time into the harvest field. I hope you'll pray about that. Whatever your age and stage, whatever you're doing now, I hope you'll consider it and put it before the Lord. As you and I pray for the Lord to raise up workers for this great harvest field, as the Lord Jesus calls us to pray, let me just encourage you. Have an open heart as to how he might use you to be the answer to that prayer.
1: Jathan Griffiths, as we wrap up our message today, a powerful message and an urgent need. Part of a larger series, Kingdoms Colliding. And if you want to go back and listen to this broadcast again, you can do that by visiting our website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter The Truth is able to stay on the station each day because of your generosity. And as you give a gift of any amount this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book written by Warren wearsby It's called The Names of Jesus, and Jonathan, how does knowing the names of Jesus help us in our Christian walk? Well, the
0: Bible's presentation of who the Lord Jesus is 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 so rich and so varied, and one of the ways that the Bible helps us to get to know Jesus better is by teaching us his different names, and there are so many by which he is introduced to us in Scripture. We think of the Prince of Peace, we think of uh, the Carpenter— we think of the Lamb, uh, we think of the firstborn, and, and many others. And in this wonderful little book, the author helps us to explore the names of Jesus so that we can get to know Jesus better personally. And I think that's going to be so rich and so encouraging for those who are able to get hold
1: of this and to read it. Well, we'd love to send you a copy as our way of saying thank you for your financial support this month. To give a gift online, come visit our website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or call us at 833 833- 833 that might be easier to remember as 833-99-TRUTH or again our website is encounterthetruth.org for producer Mark Brenna and our Bible teacher Jonathan Griffiths I'm Steve Hiller thanks for listening and I hope you'll join us next time